We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Too many times I've said something candidly and gone afterwards, I should have had that be the official way I said things. With the world building exercise, typically what we've done is take a premise for the thing that's going to be built and then built from that, right? So here's the game setting, here's the book setting, et cetera. But I know a lot of folks kind of seize up at that point because either there's so much they don't know or because there's too much that's already known and they're afraid of making any changes at all to it without kind of disturbing the Jenga tower. So Stephen and I, when he had been on his episode last, talked about the notion philosophically of possible worlds. And it got me thinking, you can take the same approach to the world building exercise where you don't work on the actual world, but possible ones instead. You take some of those same truths and feel around the thing you're going to create to see what it's like. So we're Gundam winging this. Kind of. Where whatever you're going to make that's, you have all the emotional fear and attachment and everything else the baggage to, it's over there. It's fine. It's safe. We're going to take some fundamental things that make that true and play with those and see what else they might say. And that might be then reflected in the work itself. It might just be a great opportunity to set the whole thing on fire and see what remains. But it gives you the freedom to separate from all the stuff you're attached to to play. And I wanted to use that kind of as a as a a framework for our world building stuff going forward because I think it's the less scarier approach. Like a Marvel what if. Yeah, and it's infinite. It allows us to do this for anything we create as a as a world that we're playing with that we want to what if or it is a somewhat popular um, genre that's going around the internet right now. You've got, uh, for the past year or so, uh, you've had people doing things like, well, what if this happened in Dragon Ball or My Hero Academia or that kind right. of thing? What if we took all of these premises and, and followed them the way we think they, should, they would go or result in? Or we added one thing that wasn't there to it now? I think, importantly, you can also take this exercise to existing properties since we're not modifying the property we can take we kind of did that on uh geekly oddcast when we would try to come up with you know horror movie versions of right. so I, I guess part of this is, a, is an act of codifying things we've done in the past so that there's an exercise and a process to it partly because the show I, as i'm pivoting is going to focus more on process and product how you make and what you make and therefore everything we should do in some form should reflect on that the exercise then becomes a way to practice how to make so even if you don't like the results of what we come up with on the show the the work itself of let's just do this again get on the treadmill see what we get to this time get on the trail so on is valuable and maybe the exercise isn't interesting to you but the result is oh that's a great game setting i want to play around in this world that came out of the thing you just did still want i still want to riff that uh i just have to get people on the same page of what like what i'm thinking uh because uh, i still want to riff that uh star stairs without number thing stairs without number thank you yeah no that was the whole point it was a joke on stars without number but 
I honestly think Ken and Dex would be the ones who wanted that conversation because they love that system. Well, the, no, the, 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 yeah, the funny thing is I didn't, I was just planning on it being a one page, but it's, it's weird. Every world I come up with is like this very, well, I mean, I think you'd be very akin to it in, in the, in the way of like, something's like very, like very seriously wrong, but it's like, you're stuck on an endless set of stairs and people are just living along them, you know, in, in these communities. I don't even know how they're surviving, but you know, you're trying to find something and, and things just keep spiraling out of control and you have to move on to the next one. You know, my grandfather, who's from the old country, used to tell my mother and her cousins and her siblings that he was a sheriff on the Russian steppes. But here's the thing. The Russian steppes were steppes. Just an unending, bitterly cold, entrenched series of steppes in the great north of Russia that he was a sheriff of. You know, I, if we one page this, I, I, one of the things I was going to roll for is what kind of stairs are you looking at? And MC Escher style was one of them. And just an endless, you know, industrial stairwell was one of them. I want that one to be one of them. I do too. Okay. So I think we've got our open, our cold open to the episode. <laughs> how we usually roll, isn't it? Very often. Why should on episode 50 of all things, this be any different? No, in fact, this needs to become the thing. <laughs> God, no, the thing when we started was to not do the intro to the end of the episode. Well, we have moved past that. <laughs> Officially, yes. Speaking of, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. And it is our 50th episode, so I've invited back one of our earliest, I think, first guests. And Quite now, possibly. You were on episode one along with Pablo, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now official co-host, Dave Herman. Yep. Hello, I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesses of the Brothers Herman and the spearhead of Otter Worlds. When we started this endeavor, I don't know if we had much of a direction, but I think sometimes when you begin a thing, you don't know where you're going until you're partway through the journey itself. It's good that way, actually. One of the in- inherent problems you see in a lot of, I don't know, you, I, I see YouTubers complain about it now and then, where like they get stuck in one thing they they're they're uncertain where to go they get something that gets popular and then they get stuck doing that uh over and over because that's what gets them views but the inherent problem is that this show is about the creative process the last thing that you (laughs) want to do in a show like this is get stuck on one thing yes inevitably the act of creation is non-linear which is why i think i this quotation from buber always sticks out with me He wrote, and I have it on my site, but I have it on the socials too. Creation does not merely take place once in the beginning, but also at every moment throughout the whole of time. And as you and I have talked about, my writing is like this. Oh, I'll start a book. This is 12 years ago. I'll start a book. It'll be a book. It'll have this synopsis. I'll follow the synopsis. I think, as I told you last year, I sat down the week before my dad died and went, you know... I wonder if I were to make this a television show, not a book, right? What if this were a television show? What if it had seasons? Okay. I feel like in my gut, it has three seasons. So let's take this season one, two, and three. (laughs) You can make it a Netflix series. Yeah. You know, so I think maybe I just watched uh, Shadow and Bone, which was an adaptation of Lee Bardugo's series Mm -hmm. or a number of others might have been Lock and Key. It's become common for IPs to be adapted into other forms of media nowadays. So as you create one, you usually tend to try to think about other ways the IP could exist. I think actually in my episodes with Matt Selznick last year, we talked a bit about this too. But yeah, so I what if it. 
what if it were a series instead? And I've done this before. What if it were animated instead, right? How would I frame it? What would be the opening scene? What if it were a series? And obviously the opening is the opening and the ending is the ending, but suddenly there's the end of season one and the beginning of season two. And I had to sit and go, you know, that piece, that piece that was the end of the second portion of the book, the middle arc, that, that's a cliffhanger, a showstopper, end of a season, what the hell next? That could just as easily be the end of a book. So what if we just do that? And I never thought about the thing that comes after is the beginning of a book. What an interesting place to be in. And on the list of seven rules, give yourself the space memory time, right? What if I take the thing that had been crammed, as you said, into this one model, just break the model and separate all the pieces out and see what fills the space in between? Mm -hmm. That chapter I told you I lost, chapter 15, right? Yeah. Which uh, we'll we'll have talked about in episode 49 for this. Is it a f- chapter 15? The chapter I lost is officially about 14 chapters long now. <laughs> it's a good portion of book three. I just love the idea. If you take these two ideas, and I, I realize this, this next bit's a little bit of nonsense, but if you take these two ideas, you're going to eventually have a book that is entirely a 15 minute stretch of, con- uh, of conversation and action that happens on the, like in between two of your scenes. In, in your main story. And if we take this different format, eventually we're going to try adapting your story to interpretive dance. There uh, was a collection <laughs> of short American stories from 2005. I found at my folks' house over the winter. And there's this beautifully crafted piece. I'll have to dig it out into the show notes later, where it's a writer trying to describe this, you know, Stephen King style, small American town overtaken by Lovecraftian horror through creeping elements and things that warp and change like color out of space. Interestingly enough, that sounds like Lovecraft style. Although that would be a small New England fishing town, which Stephen King has often used anyway. So there, <laughs> that's a lot of overlap. So here's the thing. After all the rewrites and changes and revisions and scenes they work with, it gets down to one line. Small American town in New England strives not to change, but does anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Bender had a similar one where a writer kept on revising the book down to one line that was always left. And I think if I'm, I forget if there was a separate short story from the universe deciding that the writer couldn't write, so eviscerating and separating all of his body parts until it was just him with his fingertip and blood continuing to write. Allegorical in her mind, but basically you can't take it out of us. I, I think there's kind of a spectrum we look at where on the one end you do have the act of creation and the rut you get stuck into when people like one thing you've done. First album syndrome, right? First episode syndrome where our earlier episodes were freewheeling whatever. I hit a rock on the way to episode one recording, recording of episode one. So, okay, premise of episode one, what if a rock hits the earth? I mean, essentially this, this started out as you sharing your process and then grew because people started asking you specific questions about it. And we started branching into how we could help other people. And now this has become this, this vast growing idea about the creative process i I do think yeah it's it eventually in its earlier stages through maybe the first year or so became an act of us i don't like the word determining but coalescing as a as a storytelling guide here's how Mm -hmm. we tell stories here's how you can tell stories and then particularly as we did more of the workshopping episodes for my work for other folks work for playing Mm -hmm. around with other ips and properties and telling stories performatively we moved into here's the act of creation and the result of it as well. And here's how messy it can be. Here's how fun and confusing and ugly and weird it can be and how to find joy in all of that anyway. 
you know, I'll never forget one of my students who was petrified of writing saying to me that before I begin, I'm going to, I'm going to start painting this flower on a page. And at first I'm going to be, I think I can only get the one down, but I want to keep doing this painting over and over again until I get to the point where the page is all flowers and all the gray is gone. Does it have anything to do with my book? No, but you know, you tell me about finding the joy in creating. And I think that will reflect it because I told her, I said, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not here to talk to you about the traumas you've been through, although clearly they'll affect through the fears and expectations you have still what you make because creation is a reflective process. I mean, creation is very much a, what you get out of it depends a lot on what you put into it. And the one thing that you always have to put into it, no matter, no matter what else is yourself. Absolutely. I, I know I've said this on the show. I had a friend who interviewed weavers down in South America and they left a black thread in the weaving that they would, they believe their soul was immersed in the works they made. And the thread was the way of pulling it back out at the end so that they didn't remain disparate after they'd finished scattered entirely. But, you know, I told her, I told her, you, I can't help you through what you're struggling through, but I do know you need to find joy in the act of creating to sustain you through the times when it is not. And I think it comes down to fundamentally grappling with uncertainty, right? There's so much of our lives, I think, every day that can be terrifying and weird and unknown. And in the act of creating something, it's not just our world that's unknown, but now another one too. I was telling this to my, my social media manager. I said, the thing about writing a story in particular is that it's already bigger than you and you contain you. So why not give the thing you'll make somewhere else to live? Do you remember Stephen once telling me about the idea? And, and, and uh, I apologize, Stephen, I'm going to butcher this, but it was the, the idea that our minds are broader than our brains and that everything that we've had to do with writing and, and, and art and all of that is a way of extending out our minds in, in other ways. In my typical engineering sense, I would, I would talk about that as external storage medium. But stories are fundamentally just patterns attached to impressions and experiences ways of creating that capacity and containing it so that you can access it later and make sense of it. They're effectively coding. They're, and they're ways of passing that coding on to other people. Right, because the, the symbols, the meaning of the symbols, of the language of the letters doesn't change much, although it certainly does change over time. But you can, as I think I was talking with Stephen, you can tell a story in pictographs and if a reader's looking at this now and in a thousand years, they'll still extract a meaning from it. It might not be the intended meaning, but they will still derive a meaning from that same act of expression. And that's fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Not only can we create an impact and a legacy, but there's a certain trust, I think, even as we talked about, where the act of creating and experiencing the creation are not synchronous, of a story written, piece of music performed, and when you encounter it, those two things can be months, days, centuries apart, but they still span that space and time with a great, with a sense of immediacy. I imagine someone listening to the show from the start to end, it will experience it differently than someone who joins later on. They're journey- Seriously, someone who joined just now, or you mean, you mean uh, <laughs> if you started at the beginning episode, I don't know why anyone would pick up an episode and then scan to halfway through, but that's the image I just got. <laughs> Oh, they're weird, but you know, we have those too. So what is, so we, I guess we should say that we are sort of kind of moving into a new stage. Yeah. It's been episode 50. It's a good point for reflection as you should with any point of the work you've made so far, take a moment to step back and out of the process itself to examine 
what you've created and see what else you could make or a change in that shape, the revision stage, as it were. Mm-hmm. I, as you've all probably heard, we've done a fair amount of world building episodes on the show lately. And that's partly been me as the curator on the show reflecting on the purpose of that exercise, both for us and for you as the audience. And as we were talking about in the cold open, I do know from teaching and having worked with a number of folks that sometimes making changes to the thing you wish to make is terrifying. Sometimes talking about and inviting other folks to suggest what could be to the thing that matters so much to you and creative work is intimate. It's deeply emotional. You do, as Dave said, pour so much of yourself into it and then out of it as well, that it can be difficult to broaden that space enough for other folks to play it, which is why I'm reflecting on the world building exercises and our conversations, my conversations with Dave's brother, Stephen. I wanted to toy around, to play around with this idea of possible worlds of not the one you'll create, but ones that could be made using the same set of rules, the same truths. What if scenarios, alternate universes, what, you know, if something happened a little bit differently, uh, the idea is actually pretty common and has been for a while now. Uh, I think the first idea, the first thing I thought of was, you know, Gundam is a very popular series and uh, for one, and it, uh, and it has been in Japan for a while. I think it started what in the late seventies, mm, something like that. And has, I think officially three or four timelines at least. Exactly. And then for the anniversary back in, again, I want to say 90s, because these started coming over to America in the late 90s. For one of the for the anniversary, they let other studios create Gundam themed universes, ideas of where you might take this idea in a completely different path. And uh, American audiences ended up seeing one of those before they saw the actual original Gundam series. And that was Gundam Wing. We saw something similar with the recent Star Wars anthology or Marvel's What If, mm-hmm. where you have different interpreters. We sort of kind of are seeing it live with uh, with Star Wars right now because there's kind of this growing disconnect between the the um, television series shows sure. uh, like you know Rebels and uh, the Mandalorian and the movies. Well, I think taking all opinions of the decanonization aside of saying what is no longer true, the moment you take things that were true and declare some of them untrue, people are going to schism as to whether or not that is true. And their interpretations of the meta-narrative itself will diverge accordingly. I think you see something kind of similar when authors are asked things about a book or a story or a movie to clarify or a game. And they say, no, this is what happened. And fans either go, okay, yes, or I don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. My experience of this is not yours. And even though you're the creator, I disagree. And that's fine. I I think, as we said on the show, it's important to own your experience of a thing and let others own theirs too. Mm -hmm. You might put something down and and, and it makes perfect sense to you. And some of your readers are going to say, for me, this breaks verisimilitude. I don't buy that this would happen in this setting. I just read a book recently, which was set in a fictional version of Africa, want to say pre-industrialism and colonialism, at least European colonialism. And at one point, a character refers to something not being a side quest. And I kind of sat there for a moment going, well, I know what I'm, I know in common gaming parlance, what side quest means. I don't know why that language is here. I don't know what these words mean in this character's mind. 
I know the author means something, and maybe the author means what I experience of that phrase in communities nowadays. But uh, if that's true, I don't know what it's doing here. And my experience of the book broke at that point from whatever the author intended, because I could no longer fathom the world they created. You know, if if there is there were these elements, these smaller linguistic truths that did not jive with the bigger narrative ones that had been laid out for 75% of the book ahead of time. And it sounds weird. The two word side quest would be the thing to do it, Mm. but they pulled me out because they did not seem true in a thing full of true. Right. It's not that kind of story. And I've had that happen where it's like, hold on a minute. You're setting this back, you know, like 200, uh, 2000 years ago or something like that, but you're having people, make comments about like clockwork or things like that. And it's like, you know, yeah, I get that you're translating this to modern English. You know, it was missing to your point. Truths of world story and character. We've talked about these on the show. There was a truth about the story here that had not been established. In which case I'm going to tell you the story of then, but we're going to talk about it like we do now. And you can't escape that. You will find stuff there. Like genuinely, some people don't stop to think about like when, clockwork was invented or the, or they you know so they'll they'll drop a, a line in that like seems so obvious that it must have always been true but it wasn't always true no and the thing is you can tell a story about then through how we talk now right. that's fine but you have to establish that truth early on for the reader so that by the time things that would seem weird for then make sense the narrator effectively is someone contemporary to you and, and it's probably also true that the more common your terminology is to like the entirety of your language, in this case, English, because, you know, we're speaking it right now, the more you can get away with it, because a lot of people don't stop and think about the origin of why we say certain things. Right. I, I wonder, for instance, if the writer is younger, and mm-hmm. at which point side quest is something they grew up with in gaming culture since childhood and would be a word that doesn't, or a phrase that doesn't have the same boundaries as it does to an older generation. Whereas everyone has used the term like clockwork and there were, and and they don't even actually think of mechanisms when they say it. The phrase like clockwork just means, you know, uh, rigid, regimented and on time. And they don't stop to think why they use that phrase. So they don't stop to realize that some people just wouldn't ever use that phrase because they don't know what it is. And I bring this up not to police what you should or shouldn't do, because importantly, and as we move forward on the show, we're not here to create disciples. We're here to talk about the process of telling a story and the product, the result, how you create something and what you create out of that. And what we do is we learn to do this better and make better. The words we use are the words we use. If you have other terms that make more sense to you or make it easier to grasp the concepts we introduce, I invite you to use them because it's your mind and you need to design your solutions to fit you. But we will, I think, periodically, as we're doing right now, have inquiries too, where as we experience something, we interrogate the experience. Why do I feel this way? And as you heard on this, you know, in the conversation, it took me a moment to isolate is this a truth of world story or character? And why is a truth of a story? Does it not work as a small truth without a larger one to give space for that to live in? You know, my editor will, hit, will kill me for saying this, but it's always weird when I open a book and I see the word fuck. Hmm. Because that word has a beginning timeline and an end timeline in contemporary historical text. 
And when I see it outside of that in purely fictional text, you know, I'm on the fence. There's there's the Octavia Baller wrote years ago. You don't have to make things fantastic, named fantastic as well, just to be different, right? There's no reason to call a rabbit a smirp just to call a rabbit a smirp. In fact, in general, you want to avoid that kind of thing. Right, because it obfuscates where you don't need to. And I think, particularly as we get into this exercise of world buildings, we'll demo today, when you discuss the fundamental truths of a world story and character, particularly for an exercise, it's essential to give yourself space, memory, time, yes, but also be simple, be clear. Don't say too much. Just have a thing down as a statement that you can play with. It's a beginning, not an end. But with that in mind, I looked at some of the stuff, and I do this now as an exercise we put up on the Patreon sometimes too. I weirdly write my kind of non-ordered thoughts down in prose for one very specific reason. It has to be succinct. I don't allow myself the whole page to explain things. Because if I do, I'll go on forever. But if I have short stanzas, I can't go too far. I just have to say a thing and move on to the next without judging or editing it. There's an old uh, term I use uh, that I use when I'm trying to edit, which is called spiraling. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, once you know where to look for it, it's kind of obvious and you can definitely improve most of your writing if you can avoid doing it. But spiraling is when you don't know what you're trying to say. And so you keep saying things like, like, it's like this, but not this. It's like this, but not this. And, it, it, and you keep on saying new things and then carving out exceptions as you try to spiral around to this idea that you can't <laughs> put succinctly. Uh, you're just moving around it without ever actually hitting the center. And sometimes, as we've talked about before, the only reason you're spiraling, or spiraling around a thing is because you think that thing has to be there. Right. And you're fighting the realization that it doesn't need to. If you can't, like, yeah, if you can't put it succinctly, that's a, that's a sign you, you need either a way of putting it more succinctly or it's not fitting in with everything else. Right. It's a, we'll go more into depth in that in another episode we talked about before, but often indicators of why you're spiraling are you insist on a thing being one way, even though it's leaning another, you're not sure how to articulate a thing. And rather than just lay down as clearly as you can, even if it's not clear what you see here, feel and think now to articulate, to, to build upon later. Yeah, I do this in my, my dress. I scaffold. If I don't know what a thing is, I do description, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I do description line. I'll do bracket. I don't know how to say this, but here's what this is. And as a quick side note, this is why the editing process is so very, very, very important. (laughs) Just write this stuff down. This person does this, you know, they're feeling this right now. So they do this. That's very succinct. It's great. It gives you a really good idea of what your characters are doing in that moment. And it's, if you left it at that, it would be (laughs) hell not tell don't show. And that would be terrible, but you need to be that way first. There are times where telling works, but when it destroys all subtext, no. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you could, you could get me on an episode of subtext alone, so we're not going to do that. Today. Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll do our episode on that. Yes, let's do, the, let's do the exercise. Yeah. So I was thinking of among the things we could play with, what premises or truths from my work, which is where we started the book and the show, and would work. And then I realized you asked me a question a while ago that I think you reiterated in episode 49. Where when we were playing around with the notion of what the world was, whether it was a finite thing, whether it was a scattered thing held together by something in between, and there was an uncertainty about that, I wrote this 
set of prose notes that started off as water as a medium. So I think today what I'm going to do is take maybe the first few lines of this. Okay. And these will be our truths we're going to play with. They're not about my world. They're just about a world that has these same things that are true. They happen to be truths that are true in my world too, but this is a possible diversion. So what if on those truths, based on those truths? So water as a medium through which to stream and channel, if they truly did build a world that reflects man, then the river or stream, quotation marks as they knew, would become an ocean that spans, would become the sea, sky, stars in expanse. So as you can see, I tend to write my, my kind of like truth reflection exercises in allegorical fashion, partly because the narrative itself has some nebulous elements to it. And I'm trying to find a way to express the thing that has an indefinite shape. That's always an act in progress. Mm -hmm. But it was also an inquiry. If water is a medium, what does that mean? If water is a medium through which things can stream and channel, if there's a they who truly did build a world that reflects man and water reflects, then the river or quotation stream as they knew, the ones who built the world to reflect man, would become an ocean that spans. As it reflects man, it grows larger, would become the sea, sky, stars in expanse. So even though water might have been this one thing, it became all these other things too, as it followed its design of reflecting man. And this was a quandary I stumbled into as I was playing with notions of book three, where I think I will forever call these the Kool-Aid man moments, because they're so out of left field at first until you start digging into the truths that led to the decision or the realization. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes you ask what if, and a thing happens, and you're unsure when it first comes to your mind of why that, you want to say no. But we're going to take that. We're going to dive into this possible world of water. We're in water as a medium, and all of these other things are true too, and see where we go with that. I'm going to try to avoid the ultra meta explanation of this because you kind of are describing storytelling itself. Mm -hmm. And that would just endlessly feedback in on itself. <laughs> you know, if, you, if water is just a, an allegory for the creative process, it's definitely a thing through which we stream and channel and reflects man and, and, and it's storytelling in general becomes its own world. Back in college, a couple of my friends who were in theater went to this show and it was a weird kind of abstract honest experience. But at the very end, or maybe in the second act, I forget the details exactly, the curtain opens. And no, I think it was a show my friend wanted to do to, as a commentary off of things he'd seen. But he wanted, to, he wanted to pivot it where the twist at the end was the curtain opens, the cast stands on the stage and points to the audience and goes, you, you are the show. And just walks off. <laughs> no explanation. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't wish to spin this into absurdity. I think we start off perhaps with the first one as an absolute water as a medium, a medium of what? What does it convey? So it streams and channels, but what does it stream and channel? So I have an image that's a fun one to start with. Okay. And it's it's largely undefined and I'm thinking somewhat dark. Oh, shocking. No, I don't I don't mean dark as in terrible. I just mean dark as in like not a lot of light. Okay. Um, but I don't know whether that means underground, in the middle of a void. Right. Water too dense. A world without a sun, which to be fair, all three of those things are fairly dark. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that. Sure. But it, it's this village and then there's a well in the center. And this village is all on its own. But when people drink of the well, 
they see things. They see other worlds. They see concepts that they're not familiar with that are beautiful. And they could be things like the sea, the stars, the sky, etc. And that is how their world has light. That is how their world has more than it is. So they only see when they drink water from that well. They only see things other than their village when they drink water from that well. Um, There is their life. There's nothing outside of their life, but there is this way. And their life, it contains everything they need to live daily. It contains water outside of hallucinogenic hallucinogenic well water. there, There are fields. There are, well, I don't know. What do they eat? Do they just need the water to survive? I hadn't defined it that far. So there's a... This is just the image I got. Presumably, there is something they're getting for food, whether it comes from the water or not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because if it's too much, you could have it be like a guy in a cell and all there is is a small like stream running through his cell. He can't get out. But when he drinks it, he is elsewhere. Okay, Plato. Okay, Plato. But I mean, I, I, I was trying not to have it be that that much that was like. Yeah, for that exact reason, not not specifically Plato, but the, the the exact reason that it's too much the world outside of us. I think my question to that becomes, why is it they drink from the well? Is it simply for the experience of seeing outside? Or does, the, you know, and maybe the question proceeds that is, did they know this happened when they drank? Or is this something they discovered as they first began to consume from it? Did they seek the water for some other reason first, I guess? If the village is outside, like, who knows how old the village is? If the village is out, it, like, has no interaction other than this well. If, like, you know, like, it's one thing if, like, there's they're just in an endless plain and there are mountains in the distance, but no one goes anywhere. It's another thing if they're, like, a village underground in a cave with no exits. Ooh, I kind of like that. That second one? Yeah, because it, it explains why everything is so limited and why when you find something that does work, you stick to it. It would mean, of course, they'd always want to seek an alternative. It doesn't mean they'll find one. But it might mean that this water, unlike all other water, is always safe to drink physically. But the consequence is what else you'll see. You basically, this water will always be here to nourish you, but it'll give you dreams too. Mm-hmm. So you might be... Con- you might be content mentally drinking other water because it doesn't make you yearn for something that isn't elsewhere, but all their water is potentially dangerous. This at least is safe for you to drink day to day. That would be a really good, like, because if you had this thing that showed you other worlds and you were otherwise trapped and there was safe water to drink other than this, I could very easily see this fundamental conflict between those that wanted to drink the water to have something outside of this drudgery and those who are like, no, you're just going to be dreaming of things and not living because living is here. And then you and then that that sort of writes a very specific conflict um, between living in fantasy and living in reality. Which is, you know, it's a good conflict for a lot of stories. It's, it is somewhat restricting. Is the will endless? Because we have. Yes, it is. Because the water, and you wrote this already, because the water becomes an ocean, becomes everything. This kind of water as a medium, like it's a medium. It connects here and elsewhere. So it has to be endless. It's the one source of endless water they have. The consequence is that they'll dream of elsewhere. And dreaming of elsewhere means you don't focus on what you need to do here. I think the conflict, okay. as it is, is that, the, that, that, that drinking the water is not the only thing that you can do with it. Okay. What else are you thinking you do with? Water your crops. You, sure. you water. But that changes things. 
I think it invites over there into here then, wouldn't it? Right, sort of, yes. Again, it's a medium. But what are you going to get? When you're dreaming, you have a degree of control. Do I want to bring this in? Do I not? You, you wake up, you, you write your dream down, and you decide, okay, is this good or is this bad? I mean, you, you, you're going to be changed by the dream. But still, there's at least the illusion of control. But if you pour it on your crops, you don't know necessarily how it's going to change them. Effectively, when you drink the water, you as you're interpreting what you experience before you give it or relay it to anyone else. When you're just taking the undiluted medium and pouring it onto a thing, you have no idea what portion of the elsewhere you've taken. Mm-hmm. So perhaps there's a certain amount of that that's necessary to keep things variable, both for the sake of surviving, but also for the sake of stimulation. If everything tastes the same, it's going to become fundamentally boring to eat and consume. And if we are underground, then food sources are probably limited. Somewhat, yeah. What do you think grows here naturally? Well, I guess it depends on how much has already been changed. Like if you're going with at the very beginning, back when people might actually know how they got there, all right, you are limited to what might be natural in the cave. And presuming there is no hole to the sky, which I think there shouldn't be, because again, one of the things is water becomes the sea, the stars, the sky, etc. Presuming there isn't, that you've got the stuff that can grow in a cave. And that's going to be a lot of like fungal things. You know what this inevitably means, though. If the water can be the sky, then somebody's going to try growing the sky in the cave. Right. Well, indeed, what that looks like, I have no idea. But that's exactly the point. Is it? You know what it could look like? Maybe it results in glowworms or some type of crystal formations or uh, luminous fungus, other things that would look like a star, look like a starry sky. Indeed. Now, the second question, like, so, so as I was saying earlier, if this is at the very beginning, you're completely limited. You're, it's going to be some kind of fungus. It's going to be certain kinds of insects that are capable of doing this. You, you might be able to have like a, a, an ecology of like, yeah, you you probably have insects, molds, uh, blind crustacea. Exactly. Amphibians. On the other hand, if they have been here longer than, than people can remember. In other words, you know, they, they, they tell their stories, they write things down, but they, they don't actually know how many generations people have been down here. Uh, possibly a particularly um, virulent form of like rotting fungus that makes it hard to keep books for more than a couple of generations. You know, you know what I see? I feel like this place has at least one exile who doesn't live in the village anymore, but still comes in for the water. No, oh, I think that would be a, de- a great thing. If the village is older, some of the stuff that has uh, is, is in existence has already been changed by the water. Uh, in which case, you have the opportunity for it to be like fields of some kind of weird cave wheat. Right. Like I can imagine people wandering off into other caverns and structures and experimenting there. And it never becomes a village for one reason or another. I think that's a true thing. Whatever else gets done, it never becomes a village. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that's true, but it feels like something that would be. Because if it were true, people would leave this village. right? If, if, there, if you could make villages elsewhere, not everyone would stay here outside of needing the well. right? If there's no other place for the well, people would still come back to it. And then the question becomes of who controls access or how. I'm not sure they really can't. I mean, I think that there's like, it depends on how big the village is, but if the village is only like 50 people, sure. like if, 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 you, if you're talking about like actually a small city underground and there are thousands, then you can have back and forth 
you know, political movements. No, we did uh, say village, though. So. Ideology. But this is a village. The people are aware there may be different thoughts, but there aren't like you would have to have a significant chunk of the populace that are ready and willing to stand guard over the water to make sure no one gets it. And and I don't think that's possible, really. Not without something catalyzing them to that point. Something would have had to change or drastically occur. You would have needed a brief glimpse of a sky above or some other right paradigm shift. Whereas, well, it's easy to explain a glimpse of the sky above. You you drink the water, you dream of it. Sure. Um, so so you have you, like there's the constant ability to dream of other worlds. Uh, but the only thing I can think of, like, but when you're in a village, and it's only 50 people. Social stigma is your is your guardian. You know, this is kind of sad, but I imagine part of what drives people to go to other caverns is to plant seeds of the other worlds that they've dreamed to see if they'll grow here. And they do. And it works for a time and then it ceases in some way. And somehow it seems a truth to me that when they do this, it can be dangerous, but it is only dangerous for a short time. In other words, there aren't like whatever the dangers are, like there aren't existential dangers from other caverns that have been created. Maybe they're temporarily existential ones, but they fizz like in the same way that the villages fizzle out, the caverns fizzle out. Like there may there are remnants of these experiments from over the years and people live with them they're like they're 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 a known element but they're not for whatever reason existential in other words if you somehow had a cavern full of zombies for whatever reason zombies might be a thing but even if they're the 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 plague type that that spread there that's just not going to catch on here in other words there's something anathema in the world itself that keeps what is in the well to just the well yes or if the change is going to happen, it has to happen in this village. It cannot be in one of the other caverns. You're not going to create a utopia. It's too far from the well. So this village is effectively the only fertile ground for new things. That's uh, so at least what some people think. I'm sure others think that it's this village is stable, and if you mess with it, you're going to make it like the other caverns. There's the, there's the conflict then. How much can we change here without breaking here? Yes, and what's worth changing? Yes. That's that's the fight, because people will disagree on both of those inevitably. And you can't just go off to the other caverns and try something and then say, hey, look, this was good. We can try it here. That's to the other caverns are just fundamentally untrustworthy. You can, but then you're the exile who's the one to prove differently. And they survive despite all of this, but only on their own. I think it's important there's only one exile. Mm-hmm. And they've always been there as long as anyone can tell. There's not a, a cycling of exile and apprentice. It's just there's the one who took water, comes back to the water, and does their own thing. And then probably the secret to that, not to be a spoiler, but the secret to that is that they're not trying to make their own village in another cavern somewhere. They're doing something else. And that allows them to survive, but it doesn't allow them to survive without the help of the water and the village. They're not separate. They're the resident outsider. Yes, that that's become a necessary thing for the village itself to function like a membrane. Hmm. You know what it is. There's a very real, ne- like necessary element uh, in this where everything can change and the water can change for the village to know they haven't changed without being, without being aware of it. The outsider provides that perspective. No one will admit that's what's happening. The pariahs the one to raise the alarm if things had gotten different since he had last been there. The pariah is the one to control is the control. Yeah, he's like in the scientific sense. He has no 
actual control, but he is the control, which is weird because he comes in for the water, but always it would be the first remark of, huh, that's different. I where did this go? How did that happen? Et cetera. And if they don't have an explanation, bad things happen. Now the question is, has that happened before? I think it sounds to me like the outsider or the prior occurs after the village has been settled. So even the prior doesn't know how things got to here in the first place or why. Agreed. I think there might be, as you said, records of those initial days, but they're probably largely decayed. Mm -hmm. And the other problem here is that because the water changes anything, you never have any clear sense of what actually was. Because as much of people as people might insist, this is the way things have always been. They don't know when it changed to be like that or if it did outside of what's passed down or shared among a group of them as a as a as agreed upon truth right mm-hmm. you're not going to have like a lot of philosophers in, no. in society they're not going to be you're, you're not going to have many people who ask that question because they're busy their day-to-day lives apologies to your brother but <laughs> what use do they have well, that, that's kind of the point. It's not that pe- these people are are stupid, no. but the dominant element is mm, ensuring, you know, food, safety. Because I think you, they do have to protect the village still. It's not may not be an existential threat, at least not to the village, but it's definitely a threat to the individual members. So there's not a lot of time for the like for really in-depth dis, you know discussions and dissertations on what the water actually is i'm sure people have their thoughts again they're not they're not stupid they 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 probably talk about this around the you know the hearth and things like that but they're not they don't really have the time or the energy to go too too in-depth to it this this is a bit of a, a real meta deep cut here do you remember our auto worlds episode where we tried to create a pantheon yeah. Of gods who no longer stood for what they stood for because even they didn't remember. Mm-hmm. I think this is the other side of that. <laughs> Everything that comes from the world is the petitions or pleas, which they can't make any sense of because they have no context for it. They, they, they probably, I think there's still something very alluring about what they see. Sure. Um, it, it's, I guess that now we have to wonder okay, what do they see when they drink? Do they just see images? Or do they see societies or do they see ideas? Because that changes everything. I said, like, they don't have the time to be, you know, philosophers. But if they're getting these ideas, these like uh, of like societies of of ideas and things like that, they kind of have no choice but to be philosophers. I think what it is, is they see and experience other people's moments of big and little, but lack the context for why those moments are big and little and matter. They just feel the things that matter without the reasons for it and are left trying to piece together from that. Hmm. You know what could be. Again, water's the medium. They're not seeing other complete worlds. They're seeing other isolated villages, but they're isolated by different things. And they might be different sizes. They might Some might be as large as a small city. Some might be like a family homesteading. But all of them are isolated and around a well. I was about to say, does each one contain it? Each one contains it. It, it, it. That practically has to be. If water is a medium, what is it connecting? And it's it's connecting all of them. Is the well always a well 
with a bucket you pull down or is the well a lake is a well is it does the well just refer to the body of water they draw i think it just refers to the body of water it could be the well but then you start thinking that it's not the it's not the water it's the structure i think it's a different kind of body of water in each scenario it drives home the point that it's the water it's i almost get this image then because water as it's want to will seep into anything and eventually break it down that's just its nature freezing and contracting it almost feels like this medium has done so to whatever verse or world it's in. It seeped into places it wasn't meant to be or hadn't ever, you know, it was never set to be there. It just got there anyway because there was a space for it to be. And because it connects everything or it carries everything between, it develops this property as well, not to make a pun, but as well. And we don't know if the villages have begun at the same time or separately. We don't know even truly who they are yet, who've arrived at these places. So let's ask this. Are the people at each of these villages the same people? Not as in same specific people, but as in recognizably, I look at that and I see a person if I drink from this. Well, I think, uh, well, that was the idea I had in my mind. There's no okay. particular reason it has to be that way, but I think that, in general, it makes sense for that. It provides a certain degree of automatic sympathy sure. that, that would really help drive home, like, like keep these, it makes these ideas infectious. So what I mean by that is if one night you drink, you, you drink from the well and you, um, and you dream of a whole bunch of hermit crabs, you know, gathering around a, a small puddle on an island of rotting banana that you've got no particular reason to start thinking like considering what the hermit crabs were thinking about and and what they were doing is something valuable you might but you might not (laughs) but if you always are seeing people you've automatically got a connection i think you see people in hermit crab hats yeah you might see that you might absolutely see that you might see the one lone person in desert drinking from the well I, and by the way, yeah. there's there's a really easy um, the um, splitting the difference on these that sure. would make a lot of sense. It doesn't actually matter if the people you're seeing are people that automatically gets converted. You In other words, if yeah. you're looking at a village full of mantis people, you're going to see them as a village full of humans because you're experiencing what they experience that you can experience. Right. The you're, as I said, and similar to pour, the difference between pouring the water and filtered versus intaking and dreaming and scribing that down. Mm-hmm. But, but keep in mind that unless we ever did, we ever go to the point of being able to travel between these, these areas, no one's ever going to know. They're not going to know if they're looking at humans every night or if they're looking at something else and it's just translating. No, I, I think we'd answer how the pariah became a pariah, though. They called the horse a horse. Well, then that would imply that there's something different about them or which if like generalize it. What it means is that when they drink the water, they see things that other people don't. They see the unpleasant truths that, that, that don't. And it might not be that these people aren't people, but it might be like it's just for some reason, the ideas they get are consistently different enough. Right. And no one's actually quite clear. Are they seeing the same scenes as everyone else, like, um, and just seeing them differently, or are they seeing different scenes? Right, because because it's a different thing for each person when they drink. It's different night to night. It's different person to person. 
there, there probably are some records of like, you know, the same village that they've seen multiple times and different people have seen them. Yeah, I do think if not the same moment experience, they definitely find consistencies to them. Emotions are emotions. Uh, moments in life are moments in life. Those things continue and those are recognizable. Right. And then there, there are actually two questions that have arisen in my mind that, that, that I'm curious about. The first one is, what happens if you try to swim to the bottom of the well? And, and it would be easy enough to say it's not possible or people have been lost that way. Someone inevitably dove into the well. Oh, yeah. But if it's always turned out badly, then, you know, they've disappeared. They never came back. Or Here's my question. Is that the prior then? The one who came back? Yeah, that would make I would, that would make a lot of sense. They dove into the well, whether they came back or just back out of, right? No one really truly knows if they managed to reach another end of it or just managed to survive being in it or whatever. All they know is the person came back different, and some even argue or question whether it's the same person. And he may have tried to explain it, but it doesn't, whether they can believe him or not, I don't know. Right. I think this goes to the truth of character if we were delving into the prior it may be unclear whether the prior is the one who dove in or not. It may be someone who dove in from another well. Right. Now here. And I don't think the pariah is deliberately making communication with him difficult. No. Um, I think there's got to be some other reason why, why people don't trust what he has to say. There's a second question I have, and it's, it's, a, it's one that if everyone is dreaming of, of, of other villages, and we presume that they actually exist, Sure. And the other villages are dreaming of them. Is there any kind of communication system to like post messages that can be seen? Are there pictures around the town and writing around the town for other dreamers to see when they dream? Do they see messages to them? Have you seen this dream? Yeah. Do you have pen pals? I almost want people to throw things in before someone thinks to dive in. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure people have tried fishing because you said there are other waters. So there are presumably other streams. That implies that there's things in the streams to find. I, I would imagine there's fishing. I think that's what prompts the prior or the one who becomes the prior to dive in. Something arrives. True. But again, the pariah has been the pariah since time immemorial. No one remembers right. what he did. There's a, there are tales that he might have did, yes. uh, did, did, uh, dove in. But I think one of the persistent ones is that they dove in and are now different, and that's why no one does anymore. Absolutely agree with that. What keeps the pariah from explaining to everyone? What keeps them from listening? Because I don't want him to just like be ranting and raving. No, I, I don't think it's an individual ranting and raving. I think there's a fundamental perceptual difference in the village, and I think it comes down to the pariah needs what's in the village but knows there's somewhere else they can be. In other words... They would want to and should and feel like they could leave, but there's something about the water that they can't leave behind. I think the pariah, and I also think the pariah just asks very unpleasant questions. Like any kind of time there's a discussion, he just has such a different viewpoint, not in a, oh, it's like alien, just in a, you know, he, you know, he'll just say something offhand, like you and I might say, like we're, we're sitting here and we're wondering. He might ask these kind of questions and it's just, you know, really uncertain he might be the one do we actually even exist yes of course we do we're here is that a fish of course it's a fish doesn't look like any fish i've seen fish don't usually have boots i think we have definitely gotten away from the idea that people are avoiding drinking from the well 
They may be avoiding using the water elsewhere, but I don't think they're, or, or they're limiting using the water elsewhere, but I don't think they're avoiding drinking from the well. Well, I think as we've established before, water exists elsewhere in the caverns they wander to, but the caverns are one, unstable, and two, the water is unreliable outside of the well. So you might not have the effects of pouring water onto things that you would, but your crops might fail. You might get ill. And it's possible that the only one with curatives or solutions to those is the person on the outside because they've either collected things or, as you've stated before, thought to look outside what everyone else does. I think there's, a, there's also a dynamic that I think it's probably kids who keep being the ones to experiment. The adults are like, yeah, we're, we're comfortable. We've got this. No, we're not pouring water on our crops. But the kids are the ones who consistently have the idea. Were you there for the episode for the conversation Pablo and I had about the game we wanted Chelsea and Caitlin to join it and on? Where you were all allegedly kind of monster children in a village full of adults that weren't your parents? Didn't you start on that one? We did one episode. We did one or two, but one of the twists to that, which uh, Pablo was going to be a, a nanny golem, which he named Tut Tut, because of course all he did was run around in Tut Tut after your misadventures. One of the twists was that you were going to bring Tut Tut home to become an adult. And that adults are not something you become, but something that's made to keep the village running. Mm. That whatever it is that maintains the order here, it's not what you are. I think there's got to be something that keeps the water like, okay, we've got this great connection. We've got this great, like, like between things, we've got this dynamic of these different villages now, but we've kind of pushed it towards this element where things are stable. But if the water is going to become, the, the sea, the stars, the sky. And you could argue that we have that just by the very, the fact that there are dreams, you get the sea, the stars, and the sky through the water. But if the water is going to continue to become more and more and slowly shape this world beyond all reason, there's got to be a reason it keeps escaping. Whether it's because people keep having a drive to try it because they're dissatisfied with where they are, uh, whether they keep having dreams such that give, gives them the indication that if they use the water... Point. The adults are not interested. The children are curious. The water feeds that because the water suggests there's things that could be different. And that's, that's what makes the prior different. The prior is the only adult truly who, can, who retains that curiosity they had when they were childhood over. And I also think that pariah is, is intrinsically important to keeping those changes from getting out of control, in both in the way that we've described of has something changed. Right, because they, they have the youthful curiosity, but adult fears. Yes, I think they're also the ones that that catch these problems before they get out of hand. That might be why no one talks with the pariah in, in one sense. Everyone's been caught by him at some point. <laughs> they don't want them to be around, but they are kind of a steward of some kind, or at least that's the role they serve or shepherd, I suppose. But yeah, I do think the adults are more limited in how they draw from the well or if surreptitious. If not, they're surreptitious about it because they've lived through the mistakes made when they poured it in the wrong place or had their own dream. Twofold, actually. They've lived through the mistakes of childhood, but adults, but also adults who partake too deeply and too often start to become unhinged. So because there's a real more than what they've been in. Right. So you've got two things that made two people, kinds of people that run the experiments. You've got the kids who don't know any better and think it's fun. And you've got the adults who know how things are, who have a real handle on it, 
and they and they but they start drinking too much and they lose that handle or they want more and they're also the very dangerous ones because someone's got to be the ones who start those other villages that always fail right and i think i mean it's a it's a note borrowed from gurren lagan but it makes sense in an underground village eventually someone finds a surface absolutely there's got to be a hole leading up to an actual air and different sky but at air and different sky we've already written the rules that's the water Uh So wherever they arrive, should they go through that passage, that tunnel, it's not going to be the surface of the village, of the, of the world in which their village resides. It's somewhere else entirely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do, think, I do think you've probably had people who've disappeared that way, be the adults or children. Well, there's also another existential way it could be. They dig up, they're expecting to find a surface because they've seen enough worlds where there's a surface. Right. And, and they don't find the sky, they find the water. And now it's streaming down. Mm. Yes, there would be, I think, in the big cavern the village is in, probably some type of seal on the roof or the, the roof of the cavern, where they managed once to patch it back up. Well, we don't know how many times they've managed to patch it back up, but there is one that they can see. Right. And they've, it's quite clear this thing has been repaired repeatedly. <laughs> there you go. The 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 rumor is that the um the outsider has swam to the bottom of the well. He didn't. He's the one who opened the ceiling last time. <laughs> and he got then dr- he got drenched there. Yes. That's that was his experience with the water. So they're they're not wrong. He did go for a swim. Just in the wrong direction. Just in the wrong direction. And that cycle is what keeps the dynamic it's what keeps the 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 village changing because somebody's always going to want to go in the well or dig it or dig back to where no one was supposed to go and that's why no one can remember in fact when you in fact instead of having the books oh that's the truth we're missing water also washes away yeah but how when the when instead of having the books degrade Maybe the language degrades. Maybe after an event like this, the books don't have any, like, don't make sense anymore. And no one's certain. And, 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 and actually, leave it as an open question. Did the water wash through and wash the meaning out of the books? Or did it wash the language away? And then whatever the new language is, they can't read the old books. So there are deluges for one reason or another, periodically. And things are too changed to remember what was before in entirety. These are probably also when the not just these are this is not when the other of the other villages get reset. Those just always fail. But these might be the moments when the threats from the other caverns like get reset. Mm. You know, if you had like zombies shambling around in the outer caverns, now there are no more zombies. The deluge washed them away. It's not a reset, but it has but it does wash away the lesser water manipulation. This is something I'll touch a little bit on probably in a future episode, but I had a myth in the book of a tree that drinks up the ocean. And I always wondered, because there's effectively something like a tree that made the ocean lower, where the water went. And it's not something I ever truly had to answer, but it was a thing that just kind of sat in the back of my mind. And in the book, there's this side and the other that side. And some would think that one is before and one's after. Some think they're the same, but you one, only one is easy to find. But I kind of thought about it and realized... Well, if you were to make a hole in whatever separates the two, some of the water goes to that side. Not all of it, but some. It evens out. Yeah. You have no control over what of it does, but some of it goes to that side. So it would seem entirely away, but it is just in some other form or portion of the world that's difficult to find. And yeah, just like a really weird, I was looking for, oh, now I remember. 
explaining how characters traveled across that sea, the one that washed away, or things like it, to where they later arrived. Because they didn't travel the normal sea, it was something like the White Briar Sea, where the waves were like thorns curling against your skin. Like, I forget the language. This could go crazy, but I'm going to try it anyway. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think you have something similar here where the water does wash through. There is a greater sphere in which all this stuff is contained that is more than the villages and the places where the wells reside, but it is by and large inaccessible. Yes. I also have this idea, and I don't think this is one that needs to be an an integral part of the story or not, but this idea that if you keep getting bursts of water from the ceiling, it's going to slowly change the ceiling, and you might eventually have it becoming more like a sky, but it's not really growing it's the, the, the inside space hasn't expanded that much there. The, it's just slowly moving more towards an opening, um, but it's still sealed. Like the implication being that if you went to one of these other villages where there was a sky and built a tower, you'd eventually run into something. And if you drilled through it, water would start pouring through. Not a fake, but, but I want to be clear. The imagery in my head is not that it's a fake sky that's projected on a dome. Yes. But that the sky only goes for so long that that in the in the cavern, you're used to the idea of stone surrounding in these other worlds. You're used to the idea of sky surrounding, but neither one does. It's water that surrounds. Do you know what the rough translation of the Hebrew word for the sky is? What's that? Shemayim, the sea above. (laughs) That's a very loose translation. It's also sometimes translated as mixture of fire and water above but yeah the, the you have the ocean mayam yam or water mayam and then the sky which is higher water <laughs> all fluid nothing stable <laughs> uh very often when people describe like a flat world where you do it like where you sail off uh sail far enough away and the and the world ends that I, i've seen it in multiple sources where you get to this point where the sky and the sea are just inseparable from each other like, you can't see a difference. There's not a horizon anymore. I think it's why things like salt, the salt flats are such a liminal, weird space to us, because it's that visual effect in places we can reach. And it's completely disorienting because there is... Oh, the closest I've been is uh, in Portugal. There's a cliff called the end of the world. It's the furthest out part of the continent into the ocean. There's no landmass on the continent beyond it. And you can't see anything by ocean past. And it's conceptually but also experientially weird because at some point people were standing there and did not think anything existed beyond it this is just it the end of the world that is and that's why you get those horror stories of like not horror stories but um those weird images that go around online of liminal spaces and how odd they are there's like an expectation but not a delivery we are born in a body of water by and large and there's a reason out of the cradle, endlessly rocking goes the way it does as a poem. But the, the notion that this substance we need to survive that can overwhelm us, that also seems endless, is not just there at the end of the world we can live on, but there in the sky above. Yeah, it, you see, I, I guess why in kind of like myth and war, it becomes this symbol for what is beyond us, or what is for terrifying reasons or for awe-inspiring ones, for numinous ones, more than we are and ever will be. And 
I think in part two, it's because the land largely stays the same. Earthquakes are, you know, they happen, but mm. you can be on the sea. It can be flat. It can be solid. It can be motionless. And then you can have the storm too. And nothing, nothing is safe. Nothing is stable. You're at the mercy of something that has no concern, whatever for you. I've heard folks say on shows that space is terrifying, but underwater is our space too. Mm-hmm. That one's definitely true. There's a, there's a reason like a lot of people have that phobia, not a, not a full on phobia. Uh, well, off, for some people it is where you're just in, now I'm just paint the word picture here of you're out swimming. You can see you're out swimming in the ocean by, let's say you got a mass, you can see the, the bottom beneath you. And then you get out and see it drop away. And you're just looking down at, at like a bottomless expanse of ocean. I mean, the, the, the world we were playing with in the episode today could just as easily be some type of weird in-space hydrosphere with things floating in it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, things wouldn't be consistent because they're never where they were. I think, I'm not a huge fan of the book, but Neil Stephenson's Seven Eves, he conceived of humans leaving Earth to effectively a colony of mini ships and hydroponic environments so that if things fell apart or broke away, they could maneuver around like a school of fish do, obstacles without suffering too much impact. At least that was one of the ways they tried to escape. The other was kind of the classic weird tourist on a rod, et cetera, <clears throat> base system. And of course, he devolved into cannibalism and weird politics because Stevenson. <laughs> yeah. I, the book's very strange. But I think the, the fun of these kinds of exercises is they allow you to play, th- play with things that are emblematic, that are symbolic, but also, as with language and self, and words itself, See what else you can make. Yeah, I've arranged these words on this page to convey this thing here. That is the thing I'm trying to create. I can just as easily tear all of that up or put it to the side and take this stuff and something purely reflective of create. And what we, interestingly, what we sort of created was a framework. There's the seeds of potential stories here, Mm -hmm. but mostly what we've got is this interconnected batch of little villages each of which like can be altered and strangeness can come through. There's not a story yet. There's no, just the idea of what might happen. Stories require truths of character and the story itself too. We've got truths of the world here and things that would imply truths of character and ways in which the story could be told. But you'd have to lay out those others as well to find your beginning, your middle and end for a given journey there. And I think it's important to note that that's fine. Part of the, Part of this exercise, again, is to model the process of creating. You don't have to make everything at a given point. You can just take a portion of and play with it. Part of it is see what else you can make so that you don't feel as limited by the one thing so far you've tried or you endeavor to create. I used to have a, a logic professor who loved introducing every class by saying, remember, syllogisms are brain exercises. So today we're going to pump you up. <laughs> he was weird. But I think, as your brother can attest, most teachers who endeavor to teach philosophy to college students have to be. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or by slow induction, slow uh, osmosis of particulate matter over the years <laughs> as they wish to impart their learnings onto not fully formed minds. But yes, I, I do think fundamentally the joy of this is playing with the idea, seeing it else, what might come of it. And again, Everything else you were going to make from these truths anyway is still safe, right? My book's still over there. Yeah, exactly. 
Here we've got this completely offbeat thing. We haven't done any damage whatsoever, but we might have come up with some ideas that we that, that, that could be used here, or if not here, elsewhere. I'll give you an extra truth, which is part of where the direction took in my book. Stream and channel also referred to signal. So communication. Yeah. And that took in some weird permutations that went way back to from the far away then to the now. And to me sitting here describing Adam and his father's study going, how, and this says, yeah, this takes us full circle, right? I'm describing Adam sitting in his father's study in the prologue as his father's imparting some of the history and lore while preparing him for a kind of a pseudo-religious service they're about to perform that night. And there's a radio on his dad's desk that's just on to attune to whatever signals may come. And I sat there going, okay, the language of their native community is mostly Slavic Russian. How do you say radio in Russian, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh, it's got to be something interesting, right? It's got to be some weird word that I'm going to have to find some way to work around and give context to. So the reader knows I mean radio, even though I hate doing this. Radio. (laughs) Radio. Which... (laughs) <laughs> sort of makes sense because it's a modern invention. It's cognate. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the side quest rabbit of stuff. How do I convey this thing that is a radio in the space where, you know, a polyglot kid would think of things in multiple ways because that's how he's been raised? Radio. Because it's a radio. Well, though, considering that the history of their world, it, like the radio has been around for a long time, that does say something about your world because language drift should have made it different in different languages and th- there are definitely in de- there are definitely places where the language drift has occurred th- there are places where it's quite clear that these people are making up a language based on what was not what they learned entirely as in you know generations taught down there were fragments they worked and derived the rest from and rebuilt from so a yeah. black undermug phenomenon absolutely I, I got finally around to why the the nation that was was called Lacuna, even though they don't call themselves Lacuna. It's just a term by one of the more dominant populations used to refer to what had been over there. And Lacuna, of course, just means gap or cleft. So largely we identify That's an Istanbul situation. They were just basically like, hey, what's that thing over there where something used to be? We just call it that thing over there where something used, used to be. <laughs> Uh, oh, there, well, there used to be an empire there. What do we call it? The empire that used to be. Because Istanbul, I, I, that's my, my favorite thing. Istanbul just means the city. Yep. There are plenty of languages where the words for us and them are the people and not the people. I remember, I think it's from Schlock Mercenary, a thing where they run across a planet where like, they, 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 the planet is just called like, you know, uh, liquid or something like that because it's an ocean planet. And then and, and, and like one of the, the humans is like... Um, that's not an amazingly inventive planet name. Oh, says the delegate from the planet Earth. Earth. <laughs> uh, sometimes truths don't have to be subtle. No. I'm glad we were able to do this. It's been a while since we were available. We should, pro- we should probably do an outro before we... Yes. Let me... Unless that was going to be part of... I'm sorry. <laughs> Unless I've created a huge editing hassle, if that was going to be part of your outro. It just sounded like you were moving into something after the recording. No, I was going to lead us to the outro. <laughs> you know what? We're leaving this all in. If you like. It's true to form. I am I am glad we were able to do this today. It's been a while, even though you'll have been on the episode preceding this as well. That episode was recorded, I want to say, two years ago. 
Uh, it's been a while since we've had a chance to just sit down and workshop. And I'm I'm looking forward to having you on as a full co-host to the show. Definitely. I'm looking forward to the mini series we roll into with uh, world building one that we'll demo with Ken and Dex next time with a mini series of stories that we do, performative things where we take premises and run with them and have no controlled destination because there are characters and players with their own minds too which I still think is probably one of my favorite ways to learn how to write characters who do have their own thoughts, feelings, and minds. (laughs) I've said multiple times before, those people who think that, uh, that uh, there can be no free will if there's like a a divine creator with an infinite will have never tried writing anything. I'm God. I tell all my characters what to do. They say no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Having actual people pretend to be other people or things in a story that you're creating together is a good way to disabuse yourself of that notion. I don't think we've ever run a narrative game that led the way the creator or the storyteller meant it to go in entirety. And I think that once you've been doing that kind of thing for a while, you wouldn't want it to. I think I texted you how the first... So this is a bit of it. When we get around to sharing the Wanderome game, which for those of you who haven't listened to the initial episode on Outer Worlds... Think Wind in the Willows meets Watership Down, a little bit of in between there. You're animal folk in a world that suffered great atrocity where people just want to get on by with their daily lives now. And uh, after we accidentally conned a poor old badger farmer out of his magic brandy or cider, we proceeded to drink it by the fire and hallucinate about how Pablo's character, the spitting llama merchant, accidentally or perhaps intentionally woke up the the slobbering god. Hmm. Not at all where I thought that lark through an apple orchard would go. I mean... It is a fundamental issue when you give a game over, like like when you, me, and Pablo are involved in a game, although I wasn't there for that first recording part, but uh, when, when we're involved in a game where there isn't inherent conflict, things get weird. Well, what we did was we took, and this is important to the audience, well, we took our initial four episodes for Outer Worlds and we made that the prologue because there's no way we can recreate that story and experience in those characters. It's been too long. Mm-hmm. So we just assume that as the truth that all of these characters are now living in the aftermath of. And yeah, so the king is dead for reasons we don't know. There's a mist pervading from the mountain that used to fly that's now collapsed. And this is the world we're all now in trying to, to get by with our daily lives. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to sharing as we continue that story, both the prologue, which we'll have as a series later on on Tigers, as well as the ongoing experience. Uh, Ken's going to have another one running. Dave, you and I are going to talk after the recording today about stuff that had been Outer Worlds will be migrating over to Tigers and miniseries and then future things. Well, for starters, all that Wonder Home stuff. Oh, my goodness, yes. And we are now on Spotify officially on Anchor. So you are welcome to all of you at spot at anchor.com slash you be Tigers. That's with a Y to leave us a message on the main page or on any episode. What you want to see, what you want to hear more of, just thoughts and comments. We'll do Q&As coming up. We'll share some of those and we will have others like Dave on to run series as we progress. But this is a a new era and a new journey for us. So I look forward to seeing where it takes us next. Anything you want to add to where people can find you, get in touch with you or otherwise leave you? The old Otter Worlds catalog is still around and it should be um, on wherever you get your podcast. And I'm looking forward to this to this direction and uh, bringing new stories around. I think it's fascinating that we're going to have the fun, cuddly animal folk story alongside Ked's World War II with Cthulhu. And I'm still planning on bringing around the uh, at some point. 
I want to try making this one-page game stairs without number. Your absurdist narrative will be, I think, the good bridge between those two. The amusing thing is you say absurdist, but it's more like dark surreal. I uh, I was reading a review, I think, of one of Yoko Taro's Mirror Automata we talked about ages ago. He's the creative mind behind it. And I think someone started by saying he's got a deep abiding melancholy in all of his stories. And I went, yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I think about most of the stuff I've written. That's probably a note into it, despite the joy that people find inside that world as well. But that's for another time. We will have Ken and Dex on for another world building episode. We will have our other live stream episode where we have space butlers and vampires. As soon as we can <laughs> find the audio to that, Dave, you might be our last hope there. I'll I'll see what I can find. I will send you the day we recorded it because I do have that down. Okay. I have an hour and a half of just void. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, hopefully I got something. Oh, hopefully. Uh, anyways, we will catch you all next time. And you can also follow us at HB Tigers. That's with a Y on Instagram. We will have more coming there soon. Until next time, though. Good night, everybody. Good night. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.